Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'm a big admirer of Franciscan and of the community you have here, of the education um, that your professors and, and faculty and uh, administrators have built for you, um, and of uh, Professor Pat Lee. He's being very falsely modest when he describes that first encounter. The truth is that a lot of my stuff on marriage, a lot of my own views and my philosophical inclinations and all kinds of issues have been shaped to a huge extent by him and by uh, collaborators of his, and so I'm very grateful to that and very honored to be able to talk about this today. I thought I would begin, normally I, I just jump right in and I actually start with some bravado to get the, the audience on the defensive, because usually they want me to be on the defensive, but this is a little different environment. Um, so I thought I would start by saying why you're not wasting your time, I hope, <laughs> by coming here. And the reason you might think you're wasting your time is that you've got this. This is old news. I mean, you know, you know what the church teaches, you believe the church, you have very excellent reasons for believing what the church says, and why are we here? But I want to just suggest a couple reasons, not, nothing groundbreaking, um, that I hope might motivate you and might make you think that you've made the right choice if you've come, or might already reflect and deepen the reasons you did come. The first is that you won't always be at Steubenville, or at a place like Steubenville. And for most of your life, most of you, will encounter at least about half of the people you meet or work with, if not more, depending on where you are, with very, very different views from your own. And it's critical. We're called to be apostles wherever we are. Right? We're called to reach into the, the areas of society that uh, the pope, the bishops, the priests, by primarily being called to serve the Christian community, are not called to reach in the same way. And we have to know the re have a reason for our hope, as St. Peter says. We have to know why we believe what we believe, and it's a part of our faith that there are answers to those questions, that these aren't just specifically Catholic issues, um, that there is something that the light of natural reason can shed on them. The second thing is that that same consideration, the fact that natural reason can shed light on them, gives us inherent reasons to want to know the why behind the what of God's commands to us. Right? I mean, I think you can gain deeper insight into and appreciation of the way that the moral law is a law of love. Um, it's not some despot imposing arbitrary restrictions on you. you. We can know that at some kind of intellectual level, kind of abstractly. Yeah, yeah, it's because God loves us and so on. But it's a very different thing to actually trace the connections between God's law and the human goods, which are also gifts of God's, of course, to us, the human goods that that law serves. So you can gain a deeper appreciation of why God's love is wise and not arbitrary by, think, by using another one of his gifts, which is reason, to think about the connections between them. And um, I think you know, the other reason is that we need to, the, the church's life for centuries, since the beginning, has relied on rational reflection to unpack the contents of the faith. A lot of what we would take for granted today as just part of the explicit deposit of the faith was really developed over time. Um, and it was developed through reflection, always in union with uh, the magisterium. But that reflection itself uses, again, the gift of God to us of reason. So even if you're mainly interested, for example, in theology, 
Um, you're going to be able to unpack more of the theology and apply it to new situations that you know, Paul and company would not have been able to foresee. The more deeply you understand the rationale of the law um, as revealed. So all of those things, I think, are reasons for us to care, not just about this issue, but any other moral issue um, about the rational case behind what we know by faith. The most immediate debate, of course, that you can apply any of this to is the debate on whether to recognize same-sex relationships as marriages. And it usually, you know, the way that's usually spelled out is that, well, you could be for equality and reason and enlightenment and decency, in which case you're going to favor the redefinition of marriage, or you can be against it. Right? And part of what my uh, co-authors and I want to do in the book, or tried to do in the book, is to show that not only are those false alternatives, but in some ways they get things backward. That actually the case for redefining marriage has deep tensions, if not contradictions, within it. That those have gone unnoticed because of the way that the debate has gone sociologically, and that we have to bring them out. And the premise of the whole thing is that it's not simply a question about whether to expand or restrict access to this one thing we all agree on called marriage. As the title of the book suggests, what is marriage? What we're really facing is a debate, a battle between two completely different visions of what makes a relationship a marriage. And we think that on the basis of reason as well as faith, you can show that one of those visions gets it wrong. And that implementing that vision would have harmful effects for the common good. And in fact, we've already begun to implement it to some extent, and it already has had such effects. So I'm going to start by saying something about what that vision is, and then I'm going to say what the alternative vision is and how we might defend that. So to start with the, what my co-authors and I call the revisionist view of marriage. Revisionist because it's proposing to revise the at least historically dominant conception in the West and in other places. What is that vision? Well, in connection with the current debate, you can think about it in the following simple way. If you have two men who live together, who are committed to living together for the long haul, they share all the burdens and benefits of domestic life together, and they're brothers who just never moved out, then on the revisionist view, they don't get access to the institution of marriage. If they're unrelated, they're in a sexual relationship, and that's what brought them together, then they are eligible. So one of the defining features, not the only thing in a marriage, but a defining feature of marriage on this vision is a certain kind of intense emotional union, kind of deep romantic bond. That's the organizing principle of marriage. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at some of the best advocates of the view. John Corvino talks about marriage being your number one relationship, your top emotional bond. A lot of the court cases that have been um, striking down traditional marriage laws, conjugal marriage laws, have actually included very similar language, talking about marriage being an adult's most important relationship in which they ratify a deep emotional intimacy. There's a lot of language of this sort in Justice Kennedy's decision in Windsor, but in many others as well. So that's the organizing principle of what makes a marriage. And at, at first, it doesn't seem so bad. I mean, it's true, we want a kind of deep emotional fulfillment in marriage, most of us do, most of us seek that. Um, if you ask someone who's not married and who wants to be, what, what they feel like they're missing, they're very likely to name that as one of the first couple of things that they feel like they're missing out on. But the proposal is, 
that vision gets marriage wrong. And it doesn't just get marriage wrong because of what the catechism says, it gets marriage wrong because of features of marriage that you can understand and appreciate by reason alone, and that people on both sides of the debate still accept. So take, for example, the idea that marriage is for life, right? Whatever else is true of marriage, most people think it at least takes a permanent commitment to get off the ground in the first place. But that idea makes no sense if the revisionist principle of marriage is right. If what makes it a marriage is a certain kind of deep emotional connection, then there's no reason to pledge permanence as opposed to being together for as long as love lasts, where love means that emotional connection. That thing runs out, it's no longer a marriage. There's nothing left there to preserve as a marriage. Or the idea of sexual exclusivity. If your temperament or your taste is such that for you and your partner, sexual exclusivity fosters the emotional commitment, that's great, then use it. It's great, it's a useful instrument. If not, then there's no reason of principle to say that the relationship can't be open. And this, again, isn't just some kind of abstract point. It's made increasingly by advocates of the redefinition of marriage, who say the next step in liberalizing ourselves and liberating ourselves from a kind of arbitrary attachment to tradition is to appreciate that exclusivity is optional. It's only as useful as its contribution to your emotional intimacy. Because again, what really makes the marriage is that emotional connection. The idea that marriage has to be a relationship of two people rather than a trio or a bigger group, again, doesn't make sense if what makes a marriage is a certain kind of emotional connection. Three people or more can have that. And again, you're starting to find, so New York Magazine, hardly a conservative, scaremongering uh, publication, has sympathetic profiles, as you can look up, of um, thruples, which is a, a three-person couple. Um, so th three men, for example, were in one very long profile. They say, look, we are committed to each other for the long haul. We share all the burdens and benefits of living together. We have a deep emotional bond. We don't want to be stigmatized. We don't want kids we raise to be stigmatized. We want the recognition and the legal facilitation of marriage law. And we find most personal fulfillment in this kind of bond. Other people, for other people, maybe they have a monogamous orientation. But for us, we find that there's something different about those relationships that left us unsettled. They've come out of the closet as oriented to a throuple. The very same arguments apply because they can appeal to the very same principle of marriage as the revisionist view. Even the idea that marriage is inherently a sexual relationship starts to look arbitrary on this view. Because remember now, this is the view that says it's mainly about an emotional connection. So a se the sexual component of the relationship, all it adds is to foster and express emotional intimacy. And in that respect, it's powerful, but it's just on a spectrum with other kinds of activities, other kinds of sharing. So even the idea that marriage is inherently a sexual relationship starts to look like, well, yeah, it's true for most people most of the time, but if that's not your cup of tea, some people identify as having an asexual orientation, for example, then there's no reason of principle you couldn't get a legally recognized marriage with someone that it would be illegal for you to be married, to be in a sexual relationship with, for example, a relative. And again, those arguments you've seen made in serious outlets by serious people. There's a lawyer in uh, had a, an op-ed a while ago in the Washington Post saying we should not make sex even a presumption, a presumptive component 
of what makes a marriage. So we should get rid of the consanguinity requirements that come with it. So permanence, exclusivity, monogamy, sexual union, certainly any inherent connection to family life and through family life to the common good. Every one of the features that distinguishes marriage from companionship starts to look arbitrary. If you get rid of the idea of complementarity, if you go for the revisionist principle of marriage as your number one connection, your deepest emotional bond. So even before you talk about the gay parenting studies, before you talk about you know, what John Paul II said about self-gift, or what the Catechism says, or what Paul said in the Romans, whatever, before any of that, you can see that this vision gets marriage wrong. If we're discriminatory in saying that male-female union is special, then by their own lights, they are equally discriminatory, bigoted, unjust, repressive in saying that two is special, or that permanence and exclusivity and monogamy are special. But it's not just that. It's not just some kind of abstract thing like, ha, I got you, there's a reductio of your view. It leads to these implications no one accepts, so we got to reject your view. It's also going to have, and has had, harmful effects. And it's not hard at this point to see why. Think about it. Think about a child, say a young boy, who grows up in a society that from day one, through its law and its education system and other organs of culture, he's taught what makes a marriage is a deep emotional bond. When the emotional bond goes, there's nothing left to preserve. Moms and dads are fully interchangeable when it comes to parenting. To think otherwise is bigotry. Okay, so from day one, he's being taught that. Now let's say he grows up, he falls in love with a woman, he marries her, they have kids. Is he more or less likely, because of those lessons, to stick with the marriage when the going gets tough, to stay with it for the sake of the kids, to deny himself the emotional fulfillments that he might be tempted to outside of the relationship, to stick with it for life or not? The question answers itself. And the evidence for this is that other changes towards the revisionist view of marriage, towards enshrining it in our law, which shapes culture, which shapes people's beliefs and ultimately our own actions, other changes in that direction have already harmed the stabilizing interests of family. So no-fault divorce. When it was first introduced, the argument was this is a win-win. I mean, it's good for everybody. Women who are in difficult relationships, and especially the concern was about women um, who are having a hard, trouble getting, hard time getting out, they'll just have it easier to get out. But if you're in a happy marriage, what do you care? How will this affect you or your marriage? And it took a couple decades, but the social science is in, and the picture is actually pretty different. No-fault divorce didn't just make it easier to get out of a bad marriage. It made people more likely to get out in the first place because it made them more likely to keep their eye on the exit ramp. It made the culture more amenable to the idea that this is a normal thing that people do or that what makes the marriage special is a certain kind of emotional connection that might be gone through no fault of anybody. So it doesn't make sense to require fault um, as a condition for divorce. So law shapes culture and that shapes people's actions and in this realm, people's actions affect everyone else. Right? So there's a kind of libertarian argument that says, well, what do I care what people do in their bedrooms? So therefore, and then this is the mysterious part, we should recognize same-sex relationships as marriages. Therefore, we should enshrine in our law the idea that the law has to rubber stamp your romantic relationship just as such. Right? 
obviously the argument should go in the other direction. That if the, or sometimes people say, well, we should get the, the state out of marriage uh, to begin with. But this kind of consideration shows that that would have huge effects on everybody else. When children don't have the stable, committed love of their own mother and father, then overall and in the long run and in the aggregate, there will be a bigger role for the state to play as Department of Health, Education, and Welfare in a way that parents could do better if they were there and committed for the long haul. So these interests affect the children who are an innocent third party. They affect the rest of society insofar as the state has to grow to, to foot the bill. Um, to meet the needs of children in a less adequate and less efficient way um, where parents can't. So that's the, a quick summary of the, of the theoretical problems with the revisionist view, how it shows, it, it implies things that nobody, most people who buy the view wouldn't accept. It shows how enshrining that view in law makes things worse for the common good. But at this point you might just say, well, what's the alternative? I mean, is there really a rational alternative? Aren't we just lucky that we had Christianity in our culture for long enough to have a stable commitment to the conjugal view of marriage? And I think that's certainly a big part of it. I mean, it's certainly true that Christianity, first Judaism in some ways, and then Christianity in a more particular way, shaped our culture and our mores and our assumptions toward, in ways that served the common good for centuries. But I think it's also true that you can understand this view without appeal to Genesis. And in fact, that the central concept of Genesis, of a one flesh union at the heart of family life, which John Paul expresses in a different way following von Hildebrand uh, in talking about total self-gift, self-donation, uh, which we in the book call comprehensive union, shows up in the thought of ancient Greek and Roman thinkers who had no connection to Judaism or Christianity, never saw Hebrew parchment, never met St. Paul, never got a letter from him to his town, uh, which suggests strongly that there is something here available to human reason. And what is that picture? Well, again, we summarize it in the book as a comprehensive union, by which we mean this. In every dimension that makes any type of community at all to be what it is, a community of marriage is comprehensive. What does that mean? Well, any kind of community is formed by cooperation, by common action, towards common ends in the context of a commitment. And in those respects, in unifying activity, unifying ends, and unifying commitment, marriage is comprehensive. Take the first. Most people agree, most people have some sense intuitively. Now part of what makes marriage different from other forms of companionship is that it's a union at all levels of, with the beloved, right? Not just heart and mind through conversations and common pursuits, and mutual support, but heart, mind, and body. And most people think sexual activity is somehow connected to the bodily part. But if it's just that sexual activity fostered intimacy, that wouldn't really be. Because as we saw a bit earlier, other activities also foster feelings of connection and intimacy and affection. So sex has to be doing more than that, right? It has to be creating a kind of bodily union that other forms of cooperation can't. And how can that be? And that's what we think is captured in the concept of one flesh union that's in Genesis, but that shows up under different guises in other thinkers. I mean, in, in thinkers uh, not associated with the Bible. Well, we would say, you can think about it from our own case, right? 
there's a bodily union with, within my parts that's making me one thing, right? And what is that? It's not just that they're all of the same DNA or something. It's a functional union. It's the fact that all of my parts, my heart and lungs and so on, are coordinated together towards a single end of the whole that they make up, which is my biological life. That's just Aristotle. And that radical kind of bodily union, organic union, Pat Lee and others have called it, is possible between two people, but just in one respect. There's only one activity with another human being in which you and the other person are coordinated together towards a single bodily end of the whole, and that's in the reproduction of the couple. Right? The couple is the agent. The activity is the reproduction of them together, and each is incomplete without the other for that one act. So in the marital act, a man and a woman are one flesh in a limited but real sense, analogous to the way that the parts of my body are one flesh. And that matters because we're bodily beings. It matters because the body is a real part of the person. If you have a union of hearts and minds, you've got a union with a person, but there are dimensions of the person that are left out, so to speak. But if you have a bodily union, then you have a union at the level of heart, mind, and body. You extend your personal connection along a new dimension. But again, that kind of functional union with, it, with another person is only possible in the marital act between a man and a woman. It's not possible between two men or two women or groups of three or more. So that's one sense in which marriage is comprehensive. It captures the idea that marriage has a special connection to sex but it points towards the conjugal view and not the revisionist. The second dimension I said was in the range of the goods that unite the partners, right? We, most of us capture this by, if we, if we capture the first part that you have to be united at all levels, somehow we know that it's connected to sex. It's the second part that you're united with a respect to a comprehensive range of goods. We usually associate with home life. And that's why the standard norm for a married couple is to live together and to share not just intellectual activities the way a university does, not just recreation the way a sports team does, but somehow a little bit of everything. And you might also already have the insight that that's somehow connected to the fact that marriage is oriented to creating what? Not just recreational experiences, not just art or music like a drama troupe or a band, but whole new human beings new subjects of all of these goods, recreational and intellectual and so on. And so the marriage itself is oriented to some cooperation in respect to every dimension that would be needed to develop whole new human beings. And why is that? Why is marriage connected to family? It couldn't just be a matter of choice, right? It, if it were just a matter of choice, then any combination of people could have been oriented to family life in the same way that marriage is. Because you can band together the group you might have. You, know, we, you have to go to goofy examples for this, but you can imagine them. Uh, maybe, for example, a monastery where the, the nuns decide to raise an orphan that's been left at their doorstep or something. In a sense, their connection is oriented to, to, to raising whole new human beings. They've banded together, decided to do this, commit to this child who's at their doorstep. Nobody would think that makes it the same kind of connection that a marriage has to family life. So it's not just a matter of choice. We would say it's a matter of the kind of 
activity that seals the marriage. In other words, in marriage, in the union of a man and a woman committed to life, the very act that makes marital love, the act that embodies the kind of relationship they've got, is also the kind of act that makes new life. And so marriage itself, the relationship embodied by that act, is further embodied, is further realized by family life. But again, that's only true with the kind of relationship that can be sealed by sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. And the last thing is, if you've got a one flesh union in that first sense, all the dimensions of the partners united, and comprehensive union in the second sense with respect to the range of goods that unite you, then you ought to have a comprehensive commitment. Through time, that means permanence. And at each time, that means exclusivity. So permanence and exclusivity, the idea that it takes two, the idea that it's inherently sexual, that it has a connection to family life, and through that to the common good, all of the things that the revisionist view would tear apart, the conjugal view unites, and it can explain why they're united. But that union depends, in part, on the idea that this is a relationship of sexually complementary beings, a man and a woman. And that's why you see this concept, one flesh union, or in um, Musonius, Rufus talks about integral amalgamations, less pretty, but kind of complete union. Uh, John Paul and von Hildebrand and others talk about total self-gift. We say somewhat more dryly comprehensive union. All of that stuff is getting at different angles of the same truth that's available, that's deepened by the light of faith, but also available by the light of reason. And now you can see the flip side of the common good argument from the first part. If further embodying and enshrining and internalizing the revisionist view makes it harder for us to live out the union of all these things together, permanence and exclusivity and monogamy and family, then the more we internalize the conjugal view, the easier it becomes. Not totally easy, and that's why we need a strong marriage culture as support for each individual or couple's effort to live it out. But easier, because we've been shaped by expectations and norms that say, if you're married, that's got to be exclusive. If you're in this together, it's got to be for life, uh, and so on. And <clears throat> in cultures and times where something like the conjugal view has been prevalent and taken for granted, and I have some... I'm, I'm kind of at, the, at a cultural divide in some ways. So I've, I was born in Cairo, my family is Egyptian, uh, and we came over to the US when I was like two. But it was still true that all the Egyptians I knew, and there's an Egyptian community of some size in the Delaware, Maryland area, all of them, all the ones that I knew just took it for granted, even the ones who didn't go to church or anything, just took it for granted that divorce was off the table, completely off the table, it didn't matter how difficult things were going, the questions you were gonna ask yourself were how to fix this and not how to get out. And yet, at the same time, I was going to school at a public, very, very public school, <laughs> where uh, kids all around me had their parents breaking up. And I saw in a sharp way the difference that culture makes to people's expectations, to their understandings, to the way they think about things, and probably to the way they experience them to how difficult they think the cross is when they're thinking about the opportunity of sloughing it off. But culture is shaped in part by law, and that's why the law and the policy in this realm matter. And again, they affect not just 
the personal good of the one who wants to stay in a marriage, not just the paired good of the couple that has the marriage to save, but really the good of the children they might have and the good of the wider society that depends on their being overall and in the most part decent and well-formed human beings to fill the next generation, which depends more than on any other single factor on a stable marriage and family. So that's the basic picture of the conjugal view, of the revisionist view, problems with the latter in theory and practice, and the benefits of the former. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.